I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. God exerted his power when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Garrett. It may be a favorite song of yours. It may uh, be even called at times the uh, true American national anthem. I'll do it my way. Um, this is actually not my favorite Sinatra song. I'm, I'm a The Way You Look Tonight fan, actually. So, uh, But if you're a Frank Sinatra fan, then this may be one of your favorite songs. I do a lot of funerals. I go to a lot of funerals, and it's not unusual for this to be brought up. It uh, wasn't actually written by Sinatra. Sinatra actually didn't write, I don't know that he wrote any of his songs. Uh, Paul Anka wrote this song, and it's kind of interesting. There's actually quite a debate, but uh, according to Wikipedia... Uh, Elvis actually started performing this before he recorded it. Uh, Anka said, wait a minute, Elvis, this is not your style. I don't know that this fits. And he says, I don't care. By the way, I'm going to do it. There we go. And uh, uh, Frank is the one who recorded it. And probably, um, at least, not necessarily in places like Lake Jackson in the Good South, but in many places, Frank Sinatra is the one who's associated with this song more than any other. There is something interesting I found out about it is it's such a popular song that it gets sung often and, and if you, if it, it gets sung as a karaoke song often. And there was a time in the Philippines where the song was actually banned because it was sung so often in karaoke bars that people who sang it didn't sing it in tune or they picked a different tune or a different melody to go with it and fights would break out because people had to have it sung my way. Very good. All right. You're, you're in the mood of it. But what I acknowledge, and by the way, I acknowledge, uh, we see this sense of, of I'm going to fight for what I think is good and right. Yes? Unfortunately, that's not always the way my way comes across. And we might ask, with a little bit of historical perspective, we understand that the mob was pretty involved in Frank's life, so we're not sure if Frank did it my way or he did it the mob's way. And maybe this was kind of his, this was actually written towards the end of his career. He intended this to be a song that he sang on his last tour. Little did he know that he would continue to be prop, so popular that he had to go sing many times, even, as I understand it, into the last years of his life. And so it may be that he was saying, you know what, I didn't do it the mob's way, I did it my way. And by the way, maybe Frank's way is better than the mob way. But we've just sung a song. You're stronger. God raised you, Jesus, and you are stronger. God is stronger than death itself. And did you notice the line in the song? Jesus, you are Lord of all. Can you just say that line with me real quick? Jesus, you our Lord of all. When we say that, we join with the, the Gospels when Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We join with Martha 
who at Lazarus' resurrection says to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world. We join with them in saying that. We join with nearly 2,000 years of Christians who before they go into the waters of baptism say, Not only I need Jesus to, to deal with the sin problem in my life, but I want to make Jesus the Lord, the King, the ruler of my life. And sometimes maybe the, the sanctity of the word Lord or the sanctity of the word uh, Savior or ruler or sovereign, maybe those words are so associated with church that we can kind of take that and put it in another category, right? That's church words and they don't really have that much to do with me except their intention is to make sure that we understand that when we say Jesus is Lord, He is the head of everything. He is the number one priority. He's the one who's in charge. And to a certain extent, I see that as standing in stark contrast to the line, I did it my way. All of us lead in one way or another. We all have the opportunity to set a pattern for other people. We all have the opportunity to reach back to, on both sides to grab people and help move them forward. Whether you are a student in junior high or high school or even younger, you have the opportunity to lead. Whether you're uh, on a team that participates in things, and you may not be the best uh, athlete, you may not be the one who scores the most points, but you still have the opportunity to be a leader. As we go up, grow up, we recognize that we get to lead in the place that we work. And by the way, even if you're the guy who's stuck back on the grill flipping burgers, you can be the very best burger flipper there is, and you can lead all the other burger flippers. I understand that McDonald's kind of puts a quash on that. Basically, a computer tells you when to turn burgers at McDonald's. It has for years and years. That's why you could go anywhere in the world and get a Big Mac, and it tasted basically exactly the same. Which, when you've been traveling for a few weeks, you say... Hallelujah. It's just a McDonald's burger, but it, at least it kind of reminds you of home. But still, anywhere you go, you have the opportunity not simply to be the one who sort of follows along and does what the rest of the group is doing, but to set a higher standard to lead. As soon as we get married, we enter into this relationship where we share leadership together. We point ourselves to God. And particularly as husbands, we have this opportunity to step into a new form of leadership that will require more of us than any other form of leadership. Children are born, and suddenly you realize that if you just follow the crowd, even if you just have one child, one child can be the whole crowd. And if you follow where the child leads you, it leads you to difficult and not good places, but you're called on as someone to lead children towards better things. You don't let the child reach for the hot skillet. You say, no, I want to lead you in a safer direction. You don't let the child determine that every meal will be sugar and candy and, and everything like that. Now, now we put bread on that list, just bread, bread, bread. You say, no, 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 there, there are these things called vegetables. And they all go, ooh, and they say, it's green. And you say, yes, isn't green wonderful? 
right? We get to lead. Maybe you get to be somebody who sets a course for a department or a division at your company. Maybe you're somebody who even gets to take the responsibility, not for the division or department of a company, but for an entire operation. Or maybe, just maybe, one of the primary places that leadership becomes comes to fruition in your life is right here. Right here in a church family where you choose to teach a Bible class and lead. Where you choose to be involved in a ministry, maybe even a ministry leader, and you get to do that. But also, some will be called to be elders and to lead in, again, a way that is different than maybe any other time that you're going to lead. We need to find where the priorities are. You see, it's not just about being a leader. It's about understanding what motivates us to lead. It's about the goals we have in leading. And maybe it's also about the methods we use, not only in the way we lead, to, but to become leaders. At some level, yes, our leadership needs to be influenced by the results as a parent. You're constantly adjusting the way you lead your children because you want to strike that balance of being able to point and direct them towards the best thing, particularly to love God. But you may discover that you can't do that by simply saying, that's the way it's going to be because I said so. You may have to adjust your parenting style a little bit to get the best results. But in reality, at a greater level, the way we lead and the way we get to leadership needs to be influenced by priorities. Maybe, most importantly, biblical priorities. Jesus points us to the greatest expression of the greatest leadership principle in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He quotes it multiple times in the Gospels. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. That phrase is going to get repeated in a number of different ways, and it's maybe translated it differently. You may have memorized it, the Lord, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. But I think the meaning of the original text really points to not the idea of, of God as one as much as God alone is the one that I call on. And you'll love the Lord with your, all your heart, with all your, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God alone, God is the one who we will ascribe that ultimate place of love in our life. And it becomes a powerful, I would say, the most powerful principle that guides our life as a whole. But let's be sure and say, if all of us in all of our lives have the opportunity to lead and have opportunity to step into leadership positions, then the priority that I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and strength needs to be a guiding principle for how we lead and how we get to leadership. But oftentimes we might say, great principle, how do I apply it? How is this priority applied when it comes to leadership? In reality, we don't have to go far. 
I want you to turn with me, not to Deuteronomy 6, but to Deuteronomy 17. If you have your Bible with you or if you have your phone with you, please open it up and keep it with you. Because I, I don't know, I only want you to read it off the screen with me, but I want you to be able to look at it as the lesson moves forward. And even more, I want you to be able to look at it as the week moves forward. I think it can speak to all of us. So beginning in verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. And if you've read your Bible very much, that ought to ring because you've heard that story before. Actually, you're going to hear this story after Deuteronomy chapter 17. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come to Samuel, you're getting old, your children don't follow the way of the Lord. Please give us a king, and quite literally, give us a king like the peoples around us. And make no mistakes, Samuel will struggle with that idea. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take away... Excuse me, before we step into 17... The, the quote, you're not to go that way again, seems to come from the book of Exodus as people are leaving, Exodus chapter 13, and, and it says that God led them on a circuitous route so that they wouldn't go back that way again. Reality, it's not quoted exactly that way anywhere in the Old Testament except here in Deuteronomy, except the prophets will consistently point to, don't go back to Egypt. And when they say, don't go back to Egypt, one of the primary things that should come to mind is that Egypt should be associated with slavery. Don't ever think about going back into slavery. Now, the the real um, irony is that Israel will remain an independent nation for many years, and not always, but they seem to make themselves slaves to all kinds of things without ever physically going back to Egypt. But God says, I don't want you to be enslaved to anything because if you follow me, you're free from the way sin will enslave your life. And Israel over and over and over again becomes enslaved to sin. Maybe we follow in that as well. 17. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priest. That is, that's an authority issue. He doesn't just go and get a copy of the law anywhere. He goes to the the original source. The thought would be that the Levitical priest and the priest would have, at least at some point, for some number of years, the actual scrolls that were written. And that he is to go and find the original, find the authoritative one. And he doesn't get to take it with him because it needs to be available to everyone, but he is to make his own copy of it, taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him, and he is to read it 
all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And maybe we should put a therefore in there. And therefore, he will not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. This passage has a lot of interesting aspects. We're not going to be able to invest in all of them, but I want to bring up a few. First of all, it clearly reflects this incredible tension that from the, almost the beginning of the Old Testament, but definitely from the time that we get to Exodus all the way through the end, before Christ comes, as the prophets close out, it expresses a tension about how God's people should be led. They're first led by the patriarchs, and then the patriarchs give way to the leadership of Moses, and then Moses gives way to the leadership of Joshua and the judges. And the book of Judges becomes a particular linchpin because when Judges start, you say, wow, look at this. God is their king. But God calls on these individuals at moments when they need earthly leadership and need to be saved the way God wants to save them. And look how it works out. God is always redeeming them. They never put anybody into a throne other than God himself. Except by the end of the book of Judges, the story has remained dramatically. Even the people who are called on to lead them and save them are so corrupt and so broken that it almost becomes impossible to see God's hand in the salvation that comes. And so the cry becomes, give us a king. And maybe the king thing works out for a little while, but very quickly... As Samuel warned them, the king becomes one who overtaxes them. The king becomes one who takes their daughters. The king becomes one who conscripts their son to go fight in wars. And again, we have the question, who is Israel's king? Because the nations could look and say, oh, I see Saul on the throne. I see David on the throne. I see Solomon on the throne. But do the people of Israel still say, no, 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 there is only one throne in Israel, and that is the throne that God sits on. The prophets will argue through this. And sometimes even when you read the Old Testament, you recognize little places where the writer seems to be pointing you toward, oh, we really don't need kings. And then another writer will say, no, 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 I think the king is the best answer. This passage will foreshadow in incredible detail a number of things that come true in the kings that surround them. For instance, both Saul and David seem to be selected by God. The two stories are a little bit different from each other. David seems to be much more one where Saul, uh, Samuel simply says, no, it can't be that one. No, it can't be that one. And God says, yes, that one. Saul seems to be somebody who, when Samuel met him, said, ah, there's the guy who needs to be king. We also see foreshadowing in the way that Solomon will start so well and end so poorly. We'll also see reflections of young King Josiah, who upon discovering the law in the temple, will have it read to him and will do massive reforms to the nation to try and comply with God, what God had asked him to do. 
finally, this little passage is placed precisely in the center of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a book that is written by Moses and, and probably people after him continue to express in his name what needs to be done when we come into the land. I want to remind you, now that you're about to no longer be wandering people, but instead be a nation, I want to remind you what God's law is and what it's supposed to mean in this place and in this time. And this passage is set exactly in the center of the book. And you say, yep, 34 chapters, okay, I get it. But no, no, no. When you actually count the words in the original language, these come precisely in the middle. When something like that happens, you have to say, the writer is trying to make sure I see something more than just what's on the page. Because in addition to the argument about whether Israel needs a physical king or whether they are better off without a king on a throne on earth so that God can be there, the other thing that is always true is that the king will be the one who more than any other person in the society will be the influence that causes Israel to either move closer to God and be more obedient to him, or the king will lead them away. There were always people who were faithful to God, no matter what the leadership looked like. Just as today, we can point to corrupt leadership all over the world and right here in our own country. And yet what we know is that there are righteous people that make up the citizens of that country. Amen? But the king had influence on the leadership, and the leadership largely set the direction of the country. And so Moses places this powerful prophecy about the kings and says, there's very little that's going to be more important than how you get a king, and number two, how the king leads. What are his priorities? What keeps him in tune with God. Well, our purpose today, this passage presents three primary abuses of leadership. We're going to start, and both the abuses are done, we're, we're going to look for higher priorities that are also expressed in it. First, the three abuses. First of all, this idea of horses from Egypt. And that may not speak to us today because it doesn't talk about air power or artillery. And it doesn't maybe talk about nuclear weapons and things like that that we look at and ascribe to military strength. But at that day and time, military strength was defined by how fast your horses were and how good your chariots were. And the best place to get horses and chariots was in Egypt. Now there's some argument about this because at least partially, Egypt is about slavery. And at least part of what may be saying here is don't send your people down to Egypt to get uh, use of horses and chariots, or maybe owns them would be the other thing. But instead, oftentimes, and in fact, First uh, Kings chapter 10 will point out that, that Solomon will specifically gain lots of horses. It tells us how much he pays for horses and chariots. Horse is more expensive than a chariot. find that interesting. But he not only gets them, but he is strengthened in his military power because of it. He will even loan them out to vassal kings that are around them so that he can be protected. He not only gets horses and chariots, but it's the same specifically. He got the fastest ones from Egypt. But in addition to that, there's also a sense in the prophets that the 
horses, fast horses, the fastest horses you could get, were about leadership that wanted to abandon the people. Leadership that wanted to save themselves. Isaiah will say, you think that when the enemy comes, you can get the fastest horses and escape, and then he warns them, but the enemy's horses will always be fast enough to catch you. Are you looking for power? Do you lead so that you can say, forgive me, I want to do it my way, and I'm going to become a leader so that I can do it my way. Now, there's a big difference between do it better or do it well and do it my way. And by the way, the first thing that we get sucked into is my way is the better way. My way is the best way. I don't know if if you've learned that lesson yet or not. But it needs to be taught to me on a regular basis. And I'm thankful for kind and gentle people who carefully remind me. I realize that you think your idea is the best idea, but there are actually several other ideas that might get us to the same place and maybe even get us there in a better way. Maybe you've been reminded of that a few times. And sometimes what we do is we bow up with power and say, you can't tell me I'm the leader. And at the moment that the leader quits listening, and the moment that the leader quits thinking that maybe a good idea, a better idea, maybe even the best idea can come to us from a source other than my own, that I'm simply being a leader so that I can exert power. Secondly, it talks about don't have many wives. And by the way, if you've read your Bible, you get to chuckle at this point. 1 Kings chapter 11 enumerates the hundreds of wives and concubines that Solomon had. And then the rest of the story is what we know is just like Deuteronomy chapter 17 is that these wives lead his heart astray. And you might associate many wives with kind of sexual prowess. And there was probably an element to that in this time in the world. Wow, he must be a great guy. But more than that, it was about having status among the nations. You married foreign wives so that that country was indebted to you. In fact, you oftentimes married wives simply because you needed an alliance with that country. And there was no greater alliance than the marriage between the two. This continued into Europe during the medieval times. Again, the ideas, we won't attack that country because their queen is one of us. And so, it is about the idea of establishing status. I want people to look up to me. I want everyone to look up to me. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that people look up to me. I'm going to hide my flaws because that would keep people from looking up to me. I'm going to make sure that I associate with the right people because I want people to look up to me. I'm going to be careful about who I befriend for fear that they might negatively impact my status. Number three, of course, much gold and silver. And the idea that financial strength is tied to that gold and silver. And again, 1 Kings chapter 10 will tell us about Solomon who made gold and silver flow in, in, in Jerusalem like water itself. The problem was he acquired the gold and silver through a, a massive process of taxation. 
And it's that taxation that will divide the kingdom as soon as we turn the page from Solomon. If we're looking to get ahead in wealth, and that's the only reason we lead, then we are leading for the wrong reason. And our leadership will be undercut. It will be eroded because our hearts will be found out that the only reason I step into this leadership position is because I want to become more wealthy. But it's not just things to avoid. It's not just abuses. But it's about higher callings as well. First of all, which the Lord chooses. To step into leadership is always going to need to be a sense of understanding calling and not just asserting oneself. Even in a marriage, to hear God's calling, to, to together lead in ways that take us where God wants us to go, but even more, forgive me, gentlemen, husbands, that you choose to lead the family by laying down your life is hearing God's calling, not asserting your authority. You gain authority by laying down your life. You don't gain authority by manipulating the system or maybe quoting scripture to your wife and saying, you are supposed to submit to me. If you have to quote scripture, you're not leading in the right way. If you lead by laying down your life, then your wife should wish to follow. But it's more than just wives and husbands, isn't it? The people who want to manipulate the system to get themselves higher up in the ranks will always be found out. The people who sense a calling. And I want to be sure and say here, this isn't about doing nothing, simply sitting back. You see yourself developing at your company or in the, in the business that you're in and you see yourself having an opportunity. There's a door that's open and you're saying, you know what, I'm going to step through that door. If on the other hand... You make sure and do something dishonest to make somebody else look bad so that the door opens for you as opposed to them. That's not a calling. That's asserting. And that's not what God wants us to be about. But God, God does call us to lead. God calls us to lead in, in every avenue of our life and we need to sense that calling and it needs to be submitted to God's priority. The number two higher calling is that we will put the law and the fear of the Lord at the top of our list. The top of our list of what we do when we lead and the top of our list of how we get into leadership. We need to be obedient to God and to God's word. If you're dating someone, and I realize in my crowd that's a pretty small number of people, but it may be more online. If you're dating someone, can you say, that's a person who loves God's word and wants to obey it and fears the Lord and knows the Lord? If you can't answer that question in the affirmative, then maybe you need to be looking for other people in your life. Finally, it says not to consider himself better. That is to say, submissive, to lead in a way that is submissive to others' needs. Not just leading so that you can get your needs met, but leading to put other people's needs first. That's the higher priority. 
John chapter 21, Jesus will say to Peter, Do you love me? And Peter will say yes, and he'll say, Feed my sheep. And notice how that's completely antithetical. Do you love me, Peter? Well, then lead however you want to lead. Make sure that your needs are taken care of. Make sure that you stay in the driver's seat. Make sure. He says, no, Peter, you're going to be one of the people who leads my church. And you'll be somebody who says, the first thing I'm going to do is not feed myself. I'm going to feed my sheep. I'm going to feed your sheep. These are principles that we see illustrated nowhere better than the life of Jesus himself. Amen? And isn't it kind of interesting that in that moment in time where that transition comes from when God calls the patriarchs and God calls Moses, and they, in a few hundred years, will then begin to set up kings over them, that Deuteronomy will point us and say, no, the real king is coming. Amen? The real king who will do everything that I call him to do is coming. And you won't know him for a while. And you may not recognize him as a king. But Jesus is the king who fulfills everything that God wants the king to be about. He is the one who said, if you want to be the first, then you need to be the servant of all. He's the one who said... I'm washing your feet today. I want you to go and wash everyone else's feet. This lesson is a part of and kind of starts in earnest our uh, 2021. This spring we're going to be looking to discern and identify elders for our congregation. But our lessons on Sunday will be about seeing Jesus teach us about leading. And I want to invite you to continue to tune in or to be here and to be in your Bibles asking that same question. How does Jesus teach us to lead? In addition to the sermons, we're going to have a a much more specific examination of texts from the New Testament that talk about the leadership of the church. And that's starting next Sunday at 930 in the Fellowship Center. I encourage you to come. I'm sure the room will get filled. And so if you want a good seat, you want to be there early. So be sure and make that part. And by the way, if you're choosing to come to class, I really want to encourage you. Great things are going on in our children's classes. Somebody say amen. You say it louder than that. Because great things are going on in our children's classes. And if you're missing that, you're really missing a lot of the blessing that God wants to bring to you. And finally, just be aware that over the next, about starting on the 17th, about seven weeks, our life groups will give you an opportunity to very be very personal with this process and ask very personal questions in a safe environment. And if you're not part of a life group, I, I want to invite you to, to go to the website, church website, and click on the life groups, and you'll see the groups that exist. And it might even be that if the demand is high enough, the elders will seek out others to lead some new groups for these few weeks. So in my life and in your life, the question has to be, is it going to be my way or is it going to be God's way? And maybe that needs to be refined in this way, is I don't want to make God's way look like my way. I want to make my way look like God's way. You hear the difference between those two things? And that's what you're invited to today. I want to invite you to take one more step to figuring out how to make your life about God's way 
and how to make your way more like God's way. Maybe that needs to be a conversation with your spouse. Maybe that needs to be a conversation with another man or woman here in this congregation, one of the elders or one of the elders' wives. I encourage you to look how you take the next step. It may well be that you're ready to say, I'm a failure at running my life, and I need Jesus. And the place to start that is in the waters of baptism. If you'd like to talk about that, we'd be glad to visit with you. If you're online, we invite you to text a message, any request along those lines, request for prayers or request to start a conversation at the number that you see there on the screen. What's that step look like for you? Maybe the first step is to just say to the closest friend you have, does my way look like God's way? And listen. Won't you come as we stand and sing? Oh, worship the King of glory.